Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Walt Disney Concert Hall. My name is Tom Neen, and I'm really pleased to uh, welcome you here for this program of the best of the ring cycle. Um, and I'm going to ask your forgiveness in advance. I'm getting over a cold. I've been fighting laryngitis all week, so I've got a little bit of a scratchy voice, but I'll do the best I can. And fortunately, I have lots of music to play for you this morning. Well, in 1875, Giuseppe Verdi, clearly the best, most famous composer of the 19th century in Italy, weighed in on Wagner. And this happened in 1875, one, one year essentially after Wagner finished the ring cycle. And this is what Giuseppe Verdi said. Wagner surpasses every composer in his rich variety of, variety of instrumental color, but in form and style, he went too far. He strayed from his idealistic aims by carrying his theories to extremes. Well, historian Richard Taruskin, writing at the end of the 20th century, offers this assessment of Wagner. He said, so emblematic is Wagner of his time and his country in their most glorious as well as their most horrible aspects that he has become a figure of furious and apparently unendable debate. Wagner's influence has been so great that the intellectual historian Jacques Barzun in his book Darwin, Marx, Wagner cast him as one of the three pivotal figures of the mid-19th century who ushered in the agonizing modern age, the age of the godless and materialistic 20th century. It's quite an assessment, isn't it? So, Wagner as a person is a big problem. So I want to stipulate, before I go on, to further reveal myself as the crazy Wagnerite that I am, that Wagner was a disgusting, truly awful human being. <laughs> he was an anti-Semite of the lowest order. He was a misogynist. He was a philanderer. He was a cheat and a con artist. He was a supreme egoist and he was probably the greatest composer of the 19th century, at least after Beethoven and maybe including Beethoven. His achievements as a composer are even more startling because of the fact that as a young man, he showed virtually no interest in music whatsoever. He wasn't a prodigy like Mendelssohn or Korngold or Mozart, and he didn't really even take a music lesson until, and this tells you something about him, until at the age of 15, he decided that he wanted to set some of the verse from Homer's Iliad to music at the age of 15. He was a contemporary of Mendelssohn and Schumann and Chopin, but somehow we think of him as coming from a different age because his music sounds like it's from a completely different musical universe than any of those composers. In 1839, Wagner was in Paris and destitute, but he had the opportunity to attend a performance of Berlioz's Romeo and Juliet, conducted by the composer. And in it, Berlioz beautifully links text that is being sung with incredibly effective instrumental music. And Wagner said, it opened up a new world of possibilities which I had never then dreamt of. 
In many ways, this was the beginning of the relationship between the instrumental music and the vocal music that we see culminate in the ring cycle several years later, and, and also Tristan und Isolde. During the 1830s and 1840s, Wagner bounced around Northern Europe serving as a chorus master and a conductor in Leipzig and Würzburg and Riga. He was continually in debt, continually running away from the law, and the story is that in order to avoid being thrown into prison, one night he and his wife at the time, Mina, and their Newfoundland hound, whose name was Robber, snuck across the border into Prussia at night. And they boarded a Norwegian sailing ship. And they went out into the Baltic on their way to London. And in the middle of the Baltic Sea, a storm blew up, and, this, and the ship decided to find um, safe haven in a fjord in Norway. And it was then that Wagner formed the idea of his opera, The Flying Dutchman, which he wrote several years later. And the overture to The Flying Dutchman from 1845 is one of Wagner's first opera-based instrumental works to make its way into the standard orchestral repertoire. And in it, Wagner displays his ability to paint these incredible musical image, images, these portraits. So imagine yourself on the Baltic Sea during a violent storm, and on the horizon you see what looks like a kind of spectral image of a ghost uh, ship making its way to a ford, fjord for protection. sense of the, of, the, of, the, of the sea and the wind and the waves, and even I get the imagery of a, of a, of a ship sinking in those descending chords, which actually are going to, you're going to be reminded of those later on today when you hear some of the, the magic fire music that comes from the ring. Well, Fly, Flying Dutchman is not only Wagner's first unqualified masterpiece, it's also one of a, a, the first of a series of operas that Wagner wrote uh, based on legendary German, uh, uh, excuse me, German uh, myths and legendary German figures, and this would culminate in the Ring Cycle. Wagner settled in Dresden in the late 1840s, and revolution was in the air everywhere. And Wagner was sucked into it. He began making agitating kinds of speeches and writing polemics against the government. And in 1848, revolution uh, sprang out all over Europe. 1849, the revolutions were really centered in many ways in Dresden. And in 1849, the Dresden Opera House burned to the ground. And Wagner was implicated in the destruction that occurred in Dresden in 1849. And a warrant went out for his arrest. And the only reason he escaped being ar arrested was he had got the help of the composer um, Franz Liszt. And Wagner went to Switzerland. And it, was, it would be 15 years before he set foot.
foot on German soil again. And while he was in exile, in the, late, the end of 1849, 1850, Wagner began thinking about his art, and he wrote about it voluminously. And in several important books, Wagner sets out his conception of what he calls music drama. And he began working on the ring. He wrote his own libretto, libretto libretti, as it turns out, and he called them poems rather than libretti. And he theorized about how the words, the music, the acting, the costume, the stage, and theater design, the lighting, all aspects of theater production could work together to, com to complete what he called a Gesamtkunstwerk, a complete work of art. And at the heart of Wagner's desire was an attempt to revive the ritual of ancient Greek theater and the, to recapture what he perceived as the unique spirit of Greek theater. And Wagner perceived that spirit in broad cultural and social contexts. And so he was trying to figure out a way to, 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 to create what he viewed as a complete work of art, which would lead to a total experience of art. The idea of a festival of dramatic presentations was central to Wagner's ideas and central to his conception to the and the construction of the theater in Bayreuth, where people still go to experience the theatrical kind of uh, experience that Wagner envisioned. He began working on the, the poems of The Ring in 1848, but it would be 25 years before he finished the work, and it would be not until 1876 that his entire vision came to fruition with the building of the Festspielhaus in Bayreuth. And central to his conception of musical drama was myth, stories containing eternal truths. And myth, in Wagner's case, was Germanic and Norse mythology. And that would be the foundation of his artistic vision. It all came together in The Ring of the Nibelungen, the cycle of four operas that consumed Wagner's energy for most of 25 years. Richard Taruskin again says, it is the largest musical entity ever produced within the European literate tradition. Wagner called it a stage festival play for three days and a preliminary evening. He began in 1848 with a modest poem that he called Siegfried's Death. The poem is based on a variety of Germanic and Nordic sources and centers on the exploits of the hero dragon slayer named Siegfried and Siegfried's theft of the great hoard of gold from the Nibelungen, his capture of the Icelandic Queen Brunhilde, later his death and Brunhilde's atonement for the theft of the ring and all that's gone wrong in her self-immolation that occurs at the end of Götterdämmerung. In the ring, the German legend of Siegfried was weaved together with epic Nordic uh, tales describing the history of the gods. But in developing his poem, Wagner decided that the poem as he was writing it, Siegfried's, tot, start, Siegfried's death, started too late. And so he decided to write 
kind of a prequel, which would describe Siegfried's, Siegfried's birth and his youth and his winning of Brunhilde. And in, in order to accomplish this, he wrote another poem that he called Young, or he called Young Siegfried. And this poem was composed in 1849, uh, excuse me, 1851. By the end of 1851, Wagner was of a mind that Brunhilde's story needed to be told in order to contextualize Siegfried's relationship with her. And so in 1852, he wrote another poem that he called Die Valkyrie, The Valkyries. And finally, after doing that, he decided that he needed to further contextualize by talking about the history of the gods and the, their emergence. And in, the, in this process, the central character shifted from Siegfried to Wotan, who is the king of, essentially the king of all the gods. And so at the end, he wrote a prelude piece, prelude poem called Das Rheingold. Well, so he took about four years, a little more than four years, to write these four poems, starting with what became Goethe Demeron. Siegfried's death became the music drama Goethe Demeron. Young Siegfried became simply Siegfried. Die Valkyra stayed as the Valkyrie, and Das Rheingold was the prelude. And then he began writing the music, and he started at the beginning. He started with Das Rheingold. So the first piece that you're going to hear on today's program is the prelude to Das Rheingold, and that's the first music that Wagner actually wrote. It's a remarkable beginning, nearly four minutes of nothing much more than E-flat major chords, beautifully orchestrated and developed to give you the imagery of the Rhine River swirling and, and, and growing and then receding. And this is one of the places that you're going to hear those six harps back there. I've never seen six harps on a stage before. But they're, they're, they all have their own parts, and Wagner called for them. In the opening of Rheingold, Wagner presents us with the first of more than a hundred leitmotifs. These are brief musical themes that represent a person or a place or a thing or an event or an emotional state. So why leitmotifs and why all the fuss over leitmotifs in Wagner? Well, a central problem that Wagner faced in writing this enormous piece of music was how to unify a drama that took place not over the course of a couple of hours as most opera, but over the course of four days. And he did this by using these leitmotifs in ever-changing combinations and amalgams that change and develop as the drama progresses. Wagner never called them leitmotifs. That was a name given to them later by individuals who studied them and categorized them and cataloged them long after the ring was completed. 
Also, in only a few cases did Wagner give these themes specific names, like the Valkyrie or the Rhine. That was also done after the fact. For Wagner, the web of leitmotifs provided him a means of organizing his musical materials and his musical thinking as he went about completing the task of writing this enormous piece over 25 years. What they do for us, the listener, is they help us make connections between characters and events as we listen to the music. They are musical signposts. And Wagner uses many of them throughout the course of the entire ring cycle. And you're going to hear them today because what you're hearing today is the beginning of the ring, bits from the middle of the ring, and the end of the ring cycle. And there are themes that you're going to hear that come back. And I want to introduce you to some of these and say a couple of words about them. Here's probably the second most famous leitmotif that was ever composed. Some young people around are sitting, killed the rabbit, killed the wabbit. <laughs> now, I'll bet that while that was playing, some of you were thinking of something else. That, of course, is the famous Rite of the Valkyrie, which accompanies the ride into Valhalla on the part of the, the Valkyries, nine of them, Brunhilde being the, the, the central character. And they're bringing fallen heroes back to Valhalla on their horses. And that's where this occurs at the beginning of the third act of Valkyrie, which is the second opera. But I'll bet that a few of, the, few of you out there, while that was playing, were thinking of the Francis Ford Coppola movie from 1970, I'm seeing, 1979, Apocalypse Now. I didn't say anything about Apocalypse Now before I played The Ride of the Valkyrie, but when I mentioned The Ride of the Valkyrie, I saw nods and thumbs up. And that just shows you how powerful a musical symbol can be. It can come to represent something, and we, you can hold it in your memory for a lifetime. I will never hear The Ride of the Valkyrie without thinking of Apocalypse Now, because it was so formative in my, in my younger years. I called the Valkyrie leitmotif the second most famous one ever written. Actually, Wagner didn't write the most famous leitmotif ever written. Somebody else did. Likewise, stop. Likewise, most of us in this room can't hear that without thinking either of Star Wars or specifically of Darth Vader. And John Williams is one of Richard Wagner's 
most successful disciples, certainly. And it's impossible to overstate the importance of Wagner on film music, but let's get back to The Ring. Wagner wrote a beautiful, noble theme that is associated with Valhalla, the place of the gods. And it appears in Das Rheingold and is heard very clearly on the first piece on today's program. Sometimes Wagner gives us the leitmotifs just like that, presented in a very straightforward, clear fashion. But just as often, perhaps more often, he combines them with other leitmotifs. And here's where he points out connections between elements of the drama that are represented by these various leitmotifs without any need for verbal explanation. By the way, most of the time, the leitmotifs appear in the orchestra. They're rarely sung. They are sung occasionally, and you'll hear them uh, sung uh, a little bit at the end of the program today. But for the most part, the leitmotifs are the province of the orchestra. Near the end of the prelude, interlude, and entry of the gods into Bahala, the music at the beginning of the program, the music of the Rhine returns. And so we learn something that there's some kind of a connection yet to be known between the Rhine and Valhalla. This raises another important point about these leitmotifs. Both the Rhine motive, that ascending figure that I played for you at the very beginning of the, of the time here, and Valhalla are made of chords, arpeggios, broken chords that either go up or down. I don't have a piano where I can just demonstrate it, but you get, you get the idea. And so they have some commonality. And many of the leitmotifs in the ring have musical commonalities that reflects their relationship to one another. Scholars long after Wagner's death began to identify families of leitmotifs that are related to a single core idea, such as the, the notion of nature. Uh, and we hear that motive played by the horns at the beginning of the program today. And what I want to do is share with you a few, uh, a few of these and then put them in context. Derek Cook wrote, wrote and recorded a kind of definitive guide to the um, ring, and he points out there's a nature, a basic nature motive that generates a lot of the motives that are heard throughout the entire ring cycle. Here's the basic nature motive.
here is the nature motive, sped up and imbued with a kind of a swirling character, and it becomes the Rhine motive. And likewise, when this rising arpeggio motive in the strings is turned upside down, it represents the fall of the gods and the end of everything. And you will hear it at the end of the program today. There are a couple of other uh, leitmotifs that are related to this basic nature motive that I want to introduce to you. One is the sword, a very important symbol uh, of power throughout the ring. This motive appears throughout the ring, ring, and you'll hear it most prominently today in a couple of places, at the end of the Rheingold sequence, and also during Siegfried's funeral march. And I've kind of stuck them together so you can hear a little bit of how they sound in context. Also related to this basic nature motive, this rising arpeggio, is the tremendously important uh, motive that's associated with the character Siegfried. It's not exactly an arpeggio, but it contains figures that are related to the arpeggio with a little bit of a turn, almost a bluesy turn. Um, and as you remember, Siegfried was the one who started all of this. It was, it was Siegfried that Wagner began with in 1848 when he started writing the poem. So here's the basic Siegfried motif. You might remember how I mentioned that the motives associated with the Rhine and Valhalla are related musically because they share a common idea, a rising arpeggio. Well, you've noticed that the, probably noticed now, that the motive of the Valkyrie, the motive of the, motive of the sword, and the motive of Siegfried also share that rising broken chord arpeggio. Here they are in kind of quick succession, just to sort of make my point.
Now, let me introduce you, finally, to a couple of other leitmotifs that are going to figure prominently in today's concert, and then I'll try and put them in some more context. The first one is central to the ring. It's heard throughout the ring cycle, and it's associated with fate. And it's nothing more than a couple of mysterious sounding chords. And that fate motive gives rise to several others, uh, one that's associated with death. And the motive will be heard very prominently today at the beginning of Siegfried's Rhine journey and elsewhere. Here's a couple of examples of the fate motif in context. something else related to the sort that, that com comes in on top of that. Finally, um, fire and fire, magic fire. Um, it's one associated with the god Loga, who is the god of fire, god of magical fire. And its glittering orchestration symbolizes the magical qualities of fire. It turns up in a variety of places, and it has several segments. The one that be begins, uh, this, set, this excerpt that I'm playing certainly sounds like kind of flickering fire, I think, quite clearly. The other motive that is part of this fire motive is one that I think suggests what, hap what happens as the result of fire in many cases, and that's destruction. And you have this, this descending chord pattern that I think suggests that kind of destruction which fire can accomplish. And if you remember the sinking ship from the Flying Dutchman, the music is, is similar. These two live side by side throughout the ring. And just as often as you hear the flickering, sparkling fire, you hear the destructive qualities of it. So I want to close with a couple of illustrations of how Wagner uses all of these leitmotifs in the context of the drama. Near the end of Valkyrie, the god Wotan intends to build a magic fire that will protect his daughter Brunhilde. And he's going to put her in a deep sleep. And, the only per and he's going to surround her with fire. And the only, the only person who can penetrate the fire is a hero. The noblest of heroes will be able to penetrate this fire and win Brunhilde. However, when this excerpt takes place at the end of Valkyrie, the hero has not even been born yet. His name is Siegfried. 
But you're going to hear the Siegfried motive in the context of this. Brynhilde's monologue, she's, she's talking about the magic fire and she's talking about the hero. And you're going to hear the, the, the Valkyrie motive, you're going to hear the magic fire motive, and you're going to hear the Siegfried motive. Then Wotan invokes the god Loga. He sings Loga, Loga. And the magic fire music uh, begins. And finally, as the music continues, the motive of Siegfried appears very prominently, and Wotan, if we were at the opera, Wotan would actually be singing this, but we don't even need Wotan because of the brilliant orchestration of Wagner. You're going to hear it nevertheless. And Wotan and the orchestra is playing the Siegfried motive, and Siegfried is still in the womb of Sieglinde. He hasn't even been born yet. But he's going to appear at the beginning of the next opera. And how clever of Wagner to end the Valkyra with the music of Siegfried, which opens the next opera, which you're going to hear the next night. The scene is too long to play, so I've chopped it up a little bit. But you'll hear, you'll hear these, and I'll annotate as we go along. Valkyrie, magic fire. Last example. Near the end of Gerda Demeron, at the end of the concert today, during the scene known as the immolation of Brynhilde, which signals the end of power for all of the gods, we hear many of the motives that I've been talking about here used in great frequency. Aware that the, her own immolation represents the end of the gods, Brynhilde sings, now my legacy I take from myself, a cursed band, the ring. Terrible ring, I grasp your gold and I give it away. May the fire that burns me cleanse the curse from the ring. I'm gonna splice again a few moments from what you're gonna hear at the end of the concert today and just annotate them. Valkyrie, of course.
Siegfried. Valhalla. finished work on the ring in 1874. Back in 1862, the political ban that had kept him out of Germany was lifted, and Wagner and his wife, Mina, took up residency in Wiesbaden. But prospects that the ring would be pr produced were bleak, and that the Bayreuth Theater would be uh, built were bleak. Wagner preoccupied himself in the meantime with Tristan and Isolde and the Meistersingers from Nuremberg. But in 1864, the man who would, be, would come to be known as Mad King Ludwig II of Bavaria threw Wagner a lifeline and basically paid off his debts and established the funds, funding for the Bayreuth Festival Theater. Progr production began, construction began in 1872 and the theater opened four years later. And according to Wagner's conception, the theater seats are arranged in a fan shape and heavily raked so that there are, like Walt Disney Concert Hall in some ways, there's no bad seat in the house. If any of you have been in opera theaters in Europe, you'll know that there are all these boxes and they're very uncomfortable and you sort of have to stick your head out look, to look this way at the stage. Wagner built the theater in such a way that there were um, good seats everywhere. Plus the orchestra is put in a uh, deep kind of a pit and it was Wagner's intention that they not be seen, that the, that the orchestra and the conductor not distract the musicians. And finally he, he built what's um, a double proscenium arch at the beginning, at the opening of the theater and he called it a mystic gulf to give the audience an impression that this action is taking place sort of in another, in another world. First complete staging of the ring took place in August of 1876, and each summer Bayreuth still presents Wagner's music in, uh, in repertoire in, in the summer. Um, good luck buying a ticket, they're almost impossible to get. Um, there are 1,925 seats, but it's pretty hard to get one, um, unless you know somebody. So you're in for a treat. I love this music, and I thank you for your kind attention, and have a wonderful morning. Thank you very much. Thank you.